Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. It is the day the Lord has made, just like every other day. And yet, unlike every other day, because today is uniquely this day. There you go. There's a little something for your brain to work on, chew on this morning. It's December the 4th. It's the fourth day of Advent, 2019, in the year of the Lord. So we are in Luke chapter 4. Just a reminder that as we are moving through Advent this year, um, because it has 24 days this year, We are doing the 24 chapters of the gospel according to Luke. And so here at the top of the first hour, we're going to look at the first half of Luke chapter 4. And then at the top of the second hour, we'll look at the second half of Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. Uh, We'll remember here he was just baptized by John, who we remember was introduced in the first chapter of the gospel of Luke uh, as the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, and a a person who was uniquely conceived by God and uniquely conceived uh, to do a particular thing, which is prepare the way of the Lord. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Now, first of all, uh, a couple of just two quick observations. First of all, Luke seems to assume, the writer of this gospel seems to assume that every reader will automatically know and recognize the concept of the devil. Uh, There was no need here to give the devil's backstory. There was no need here to um, argue for the existence of the devil. Apparently, the devil was well-known enough that uh, he required no introduction. Unlike Jesus, whose backstory is told in Luke 1 and 2, and John the Baptist, whose backstory is told in Luke 1, um, uh, the devil needs no backstory introduction here in the Gospel of Luke. That's something to chew on and consider. And for those who deny the existence of the devil today, you really can't get beyond the opening verse of Luke chapter 4. So you can't get to the cross, you can't get to the kingdom, um, unless you you acknowledge what Jesus acknowledged, and that is that the devil is real and you have to deal with him. The devil is real and you have to deal with him. Now the good news is Jesus deals with the devil on our behalf. So um encourage you to read Luke chapter 4 today. It is this back and forth, at least the, the beginning verses, this back and forth between the devil and Jesus. It is a conversation. The devil says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, the devil knows full well who Jesus is, uh, and Jesus knows full well that the devil knows who he is. Jesus answered, it is written, which I think is interesting, the son of God refers to the word of God in answer to the enemy of God. There might be something there for us to consider. The Son of God answers the enemy of God, not with his own uh, imaginings or, you know, he answers with the Word of God. The Son of God answers the enemy of God with the Word of God. What are you answering the enemy with today? So then uh, the, the, the back and forth goes on. Jesus continues to answer from uh, the Scriptures 
And that takes us through the first 13 verses. And then when you pick up the 14th verse, you get this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogue. Everyone praised him. And then he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, which was his custom. And he stood up and he read. And this is the uh, the revelation of Jesus uh, laying claim to the prophecy of Isaiah, where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord or the year of the Lord's favor. I want you to consider uh, the, the conversations we've been having of late about the anointing of leadership. And I want you to consider the very distinct expression of anointing claimed by Jesus here in this passage. Uh, I also want you to consider that after having dealt with the devil in the wilderness, Jesus then deals with the very uh, reality of evil in the hearts of men, because this is also the passage where they literally run him out of town with the plan to kill him. So uh, that's the beginning of Luke chapter four, which we are dealing with today on this fourth day of Advent. Up next, Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. He and I are going to talk about what's going on at the NATO meetings. We're also going to talk about an important uh, international event that just took place in Hungary, a conference on Christian persecution and what we can learn from that. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Now, Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. You can follow Drew on Twitter at DG underscore NYC. You can also find him at uh, at Providence Magazine, which is ProvidenceMag.com. Hey, Drew, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Carmen. How are you? Good morning. I am well. I am well. It is well with my soul. I hope it is well with your soul as well. It is. Yeah, very much so. Thank you. Amen. As we, well, I mean, you know, I just feel like, you know, we sort of need to establish that before we turn to the uh, the general chaos in the world. Yeah, I think you're. That's that's wise counsel. So let's turn to um, NATO. NATO is meeting. Okay, so just remind. I think every once in a while it's good to be reminded. Uh, who are we talking about when we're talking about NATO? Um, what is, what are the NATO leaders talking about, and why should it be of concern to us at this particular point in history? Sure. So NATO stands for the you know, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's a group of um, uh, countries uh, that um, initially started during the Cold War after World War II to counter what was, you know, con- uh, called, I guess, the Warsaw Pact, which is the Eastern European and and Russian Soviet states um, that formed and coalesced under the Soviet Union uh, following World War II. So NATO uh, since then um, has been this uh, collection of the United States and France and and uh, uh, West Germany and uh, the UK. Um, and most of uh, Western Europe, including Turkey, since 1958, and uh, since the end of the Cold War, has been really a, a multilateral organization that has um, uh, sent troops. Uh, there are NATO forces that are comprised of the member states. They've sent troops um, to different parts of the world, uh, to Iraq, to um, counter uh, ISIS. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the organization is, I think, kind of a, a bedrock of uh, the international community and especially one that kind of tries to fight for Western uh, liberal values. Um, it has increasingly kind of been under criticism uh, on the part of uh, the United States, especially since Donald Trump uh, has taken his office. He has uh, criticized basically since the very first part of his campaign and into his presidency. Um, uh, criticizing the uh, the funding of NATO, the United States uh, has almost a, a, a disproportionate level of funding uh, that's given into NATO and contributed into NATO. Um, many other member states are required to give a certain percentage of their uh, GDP uh, to NATO uh, in order to help fund it. A lot of uh, European states over the years have not met that obligation. Uh, so Trump has been agitating uh, since his presidency to have NATO kind of pay their fair share. Uh, they're convening this year, as they do every year, uh, NATO summit. And the, the, the big um, uh, kind of complaint, the big thing on the agenda this year is, is Turkey. And uh, Turkey, uh, led by uh, Recep Tayyip uh, Erdogan, is uh, has been a member of NATO since 1958, uh, but they are increasingly at odds uh, with the rest of the coalition. Uh, Turkey um, has accepted uh, a missile system from Russia, the S-400 um, uh, missile system. They have uh, increasingly aligned themselves with Russia against um, NATO uh, interests. Uh, Erdogan is, uh, I guess you'd say, lobbying uh, to try and get NATO to recognize the Kurds, um, the YGP, uh, YPG Kurds, uh, the group that he has been uh, fighting and has been the subject when we've talked about Syria and talked about the U.S. withdrawal from Syria um, and uh, Turkey going after Kurdish troops there in, in Syria. He's trying to get uh, NATO to label those Kurdish troops as uh, terrorists. These are the same Kurds that fought with us and with NATO forces against ISIS. Um, and this is uh, a point of contention uh, for the rest of the coalition. Uh, most of the European uh, member states, really led by uh, Emmanuel Macron of France, uh, has said that, you know, we need a common definition of what terrorism is. Uh, the Kurds that we fought with are not uh, terrorists. Uh, and then he is, you know, met with um, uh, Donald Trump and had a... a, a I would say, very contentious meeting uh, where Trump is really advocating for um, Erdogan and Turkey. He is trying to kind of help uh, Erdogan and Turkey, um, lobbying for them and trying to get the rest of the me NATO member states to um, uh, accept uh, Turkish definitions and kind of the Turkish agenda. So it, it is a um, it's a, a contentious time within the organization. I think big picture, what we need to you know look at here is organizations like this are only as good as the the values that they you know coalesce around. And if if we can um, uh, you know if we cannot agree with the rest of the international community on kind of shared values that that we're fighting against the common enemies that we're fighting against in Russia and Iran and China. Um, then really, you know, the organization needs kind of to be questioned. There's a real role uh, for the United States to play in the global community. There's a role for the United States to play in NATO. Uh, the question is, is whether the, the Trump administration uh, going forward, whether he receives a second term or not, um, is, is willing to accept that role of leadership. 
So, Drew, I think we'll pause right there. And when we come back, I'd love um, to have you begin to unpack, because I I suspect we may do this um, on more than one occasion. Uh, I'd love for you to begin to unpack this international event, this conference on Christian persecution that just took place in Hungary. Um, I was fascinated by this just initial article that you have posted at ProvidenceMag.com about about Hungary. There's just things just in the leadoff paragraphs about that or in that article that I didn't know. I, and so I, I just, I found the whole thing um, fascinating. It's a great conversation, particularly for those of us who want to ask the question, do we live, do we live in a Christian nation? Is the West Christian? Is Western Europe Christian? Can we even use that kind of language anymore? Um, and what does it look like in terms of the effort of those who want to defend people uh, internationally who live as religious minorities throughout the world. So that conversation up next with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. Um, Drew, let's talk about what is going on in Hungary, why it's happening in Hungary, and um, and this language of a Christian Europe. Sure. This is a story that has not gotten a lot of coverage on, um, I guess you'd say, the mainstream media or, I mean, there's with NATO going on and uh, a lot happening over the last uh, you know, several weeks. Um, but uh, there was uh, a second conference on Christian persecution that was held in Turk in uh, Hungary, rather, um, and it was convened by Prime Minister uh, Viktor Orban, and uh, it, it is. Uh, uh, a gathering of around 700 uh, Christian leaders uh, from around the world and around uh, Europe and uh, the Near East specifically to address the the plight of persecuted Christians uh, in uh, in the world and uh, specifically in the Middle East and in in the Near East. Uh, Christians face a disproportionate amount of uh, harassment. Uh, the Pew Research Center um, states that around probably around 144 countries. Um, uh, in 144 countries, Christians suffer uh, immense amount of har- harassment. Uh, it's been increasing steadily in around 73 countries, affecting 245 million Christians. And so uh, in Hungary, they have convened the second conference to basically address not just religious freedom, international religious freedom uh, in general, uh, but Christian persecution and Christian religious freedom uh, specifically. Uh, what's significant about this is that Hungary has uh, is really it's in the very center of the constitution that they're they are basically a christian nation their constitution begins with the phrase god bless the hungarians um and it's um, for over a thousand years uh, hungary has has been kind of a, a christian bulwark uh, between the kind of islamic east in the middle east and and and, and turkey and uh, europe and so uh, Viktor Orban, who is um, a, a Protestant a Christian um, prime minister there in Hungary, who's been prime minister since 2010, has really taken up the the mantle of uh, protector of the faith, defender of the faith, and, and using uh, the, the explicit Christian identity in Hungary as a rallying point um, uh, for uh, political purposes. And uh, this has, I think, um, as the article that we uh, published, uh, Orban, Imperfect per- Protector of Christian Europe, written by Brian Kraft uh, there at ProvidenceMag.com. Um, it, it's significant in that um, 
Orban's use of uh, Christianity as a rallying point, as kind of a populist rallying point, is, um, uh, I think, a good thing in that it's drawing attention to Christian persecution. Uh, they've set up a fund to help uh, persecuted Christians in the Near East and the Middle East in Iraq and in a Syrian plain. Uh, and I've done a lot of really good work there. So I think all of that is really laudable. Um, but I think it's also important for us to take a look at what's, you know, the deeper political ramifications of what's going on. Um, that uh, Hungary has a really kind of imperfect history when it comes to um, dealing with minorities within its own borders, uh, whether they're Jews or whether they're Muslim refugees recently from um, uh, Syria heading into the country. Uh, and so it's it's just important to kind of take into account when we when we see these events happening uh, to to celebrate if uh, what's what's good about it in terms of uh, addressing Christian persecution, but also to keep an eye on you know the use of um, faith and the use of religion on the part of world leaders sometimes as a, a political tool, a political cudgel to accomplish personal political ends and to be wise to that. We need to be uh, gentle as doves, but wise as serpents. I think when it comes to international relations. And so um, that's why we published the article. And um, that's what I think we need to do when we look at uh, situations like Hungary and the um, uh, conference on Christian persecution there. I'll confess to you that um, I've, I was fascinated by this article. It's not very long, um, and yet it's really rich. There's just a lot of information there in just a few paragraphs. And and I felt like the history portion uh, at the outset of the piece gave me an introduction to Hungary like I might not read anywhere else. And so I just really want to I want to commend it to folks. If you go to ProvidenceMag.com, um, you'll it's, you'll be easy to find. Um, for those of you at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, the picture of that prime minister looks an awful lot like um, uh, our our university president, but it's not. It's not Alan Curitan. It's actually Prime Minister Orban. So anyway, uh, that's the picture that you're looking for in reference to this particular article. Okay, before I let you go, will you um, tell people about the podcast with Travis Wusso? He was on the scene in Hong Kong. You guys have uh, an episode of of the Provcast up on this topic. Um, Will you just invite people to listen to that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, uh, you can search for the Provcast on SoundCloud or just go to our uh, homepage, ProvidenceMag.com. Uh, Travis Wusso is a vice president um, for uh, the uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was in Hong Kong during the protests at a Chinese um, uh, Polytechnic University. Um, and uh, reported uh, to us uh, from the ground there about uh, the extent of the protests and what it felt like on the streets. He really gives a um, a good description of what life is like now in Hong Kong and really setting the stage. And I think the, the takeaway from it is, um, you know, in terms of paradigm, what are we looking at here when we think of Hong Kong? Is this the Alamo, you know, the suicidal last stand of a people? Or is this a kind of a Berlin Wall-like struggle where over the decades – you know, freedom may still be possible or autonomy may still be possible for Hong Kong. Uh, he addresses that question. He does it really, really well. So, yeah, I would I would encourage people to uh, go to ProvidenceMag.com or go to search for us on iTunes or SoundCloud and uh, listen to Travis Wusso's um, interview with us on our Provcast. Drew, we always appreciate uh, the information that you bring us uh, from around the world uh, from a Christian perspective. And just you're, you're helping us each and every each and every time we talk, bring the gospel to bear on international relations. I, I expect there will be more to talk about the next time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Take care. <laughs>
Hey, thank you so much. That's Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. You can check out everything we talked about today at ProvidenceMag.com. We'll be right back. Okay, every time um, I hear the the reference to knowgod.org, I feel like I should spell that for people on radio um, because that's K-N-O-W. No God, not no God, N-O-G-O-D, but no God, K-N-O-W-G-O-D. Um, wh- why share that? Well, because we have a culture that thinks there is no God, and we are the people who know God and want want to know God more. All right, there you go. That's my, I don't know, sometimes the things that other people say get me thinking. I hope the things that we are talking about here uh, not only get you thinking, but stir up your heart today. Peter Kapsner is going to be with me next. He and I are going to be talking about challenges in higher education, specifically in relationship to students who are pressing the LGBTQ um, sexual agenda. You may not be aware that this is happening on college campuses, uh, but it is, particularly on Christian uh, higher ed campuses. Now, why is that? Well, because there is now an effort Uh, to change the culture of those Christian colleges. How does that happen? Well, it happens by pretty intense pressure from students. Uh, And so we're going to talk about the the challenges that places upon administrators and administrations. Uh, And we're going to be using an article posted at Religion News by David Gushy as kind of our conversational jumping off point today. So Christian higher education can't win the LGBTQ debate unless it transforms. Peter Kapster and I may argue differently. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So I've been um, sharing with you that we are reading the Gospel of Luke during the season of Advent. What I have not been sharing with you, and it's not because I've been keeping this information all to myself, it's because I failed to take note of this. If you actually go to MyFaithRadio.com, over there on the right-hand side, it says, An Advent Reading Invitation. And if you click on that, you can actually, like, join us, join us in reading the Gospel of Luke during the season of Advent. And so uh, even if you feel like, hey, it, it it started on December the 1st, it's too late to join in. I mean, people, it's only December the 4th, and it doesn't take that long to read uh, the four chapters of the Gospel of Luke. So you could catch up today. So I want you to go to MyFaithRadio.com, click on uh, an Advent reading invitation over on the right-hand side of the page. And join us. I mean, there's no there's no cost to this. There's only a benefit. All right. There's no cost. It's all benefit. Join us in the Advent reading invitation. We are reading through the Gospel of Luke each day of December matches up with the day of Advent. So today is December the 4th. We are on the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and we invite you to join us. Next up, Peter Kapsner and I talking about Christian higher education. The adolescent years aren't just hard on teens, they're hard on the whole family. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If your family isn't currently struggling, chances are you know one who is. And if you've ever been in their place before, then you know what it's like to feel worn out and beat down by teenage troubles. So if you know a hurting family down the street or at your church, invite them over for dinner or grab coffee together. Family struggles are rough. And they're even rougher when it feels like you're facing them alone. Your simple, friendly gesture, your listening ear, could be a lifeline to someone who feels like they're sinking. Take a risk. Make that call. Reach out to someone who needs you. 
Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. has returned. He has not just returned to the show. He has returned from across the pond. So welcome back, sir. Thanks, Carmen. Great to be back in the morning here with you and Paul. We're, we're, glad, to, uh, we're glad to have you back with us. Um, okay, so I would like to talk with you this morning about this article I just read yesterday at the Religion News Service. So if folks want to find it, it's at religionnews.com. Uh, the headline is, Christian Higher Ed Can't Win the LGBTQ Debate Unless It Transforms. So I want to. Wa- I really kind of want to walk through this piece with you, um, but let's just get your in- initial reaction. Um, you know, because there's a lot of folks that only read headlines, right. and so if you only read the headline, Christian higher ed can't win the LGBTQ debate unless it transforms. What are you left with? Yeah, you're left with the idea that basically they're going to be left behind in sort of the cultural tsunami sweep of LGBTQ conversation where it's pretty clear where we're headed as a country from a secularized standpoint. And that's the increasing embrace of multiple gender identification, multiple ways in which you identify yourself from an attraction standpoint, whether gay or lesbian. That already has sort of swept over us. And now we're just living within kind of the the next generation of it. And what we're seeing, Carmen, in reference to that article, is sort of the first crop of young people over the last five, six, seven years in which they have been specifically educated quite intentionally in many of our public and some of our private schools as well around how to be a safe person with LGBTQ and how to uh, understand the situation, how to uh, fight for justice on behalf of. And these kids, many of whom are believers, are really taking their cues from what's going on in the schools and among their friends and among some of maybe the blogs that they read. And there's been a relative absence of a pretty sophisticated response from the church on these issues. So there's not a contrast. There's not a dissenting voice necessarily that's helping empower and equip them in a different way. And so now these young people, when they turn 18, 19, 20, are showing up at the doors of some of our pretty highly regarded academic Christian institutions around the country. And they are coming in with a worldview that assumes an embrace of LGBTQ issues and the social justice therein. And they're often greeted with that institution's historic stance that says, we don't embrace all of these issues. We don't hold to same gender marriage. We don't believe in gender blurring. But even sometimes these institutions are are not really offering a very sophisticated or complex response as to why. Uh, Even something as simple as saying, well, the Bible says that this is the way marriage should be. Sometimes institutions don't understand that there's many churches out there that are saying, hey, our reading of Scripture does allow for a same-gender marriage, and, and some of where our culture is. And, and so these students showing up at the doors of the institutions have an assumed worldview. The institutions don't have a terribly robust response as of yet. And so the students are very much, as you referenced in the tease to all of this, uh, putting a lot of pressure on a lot of conservative institutions to begin to change their points of view. And I think the last part of that, Carmen, before we dig in a little bit more deeply, the importance of that is that academic institutions 
drive what happens in our churches. And, and what I mean by that is pastors are trained in our Christian ministry programs, whether at the undergraduate level or the seminary level. And if they're not being trained and, and equipped to handle these kind of conversations, then it's going to continue to be something that is silent in the church and, and the tsunami will keep sweeping over us. So it's a pretty big deal right now. What, what we hear going on in churches is almost always a direct result of the equipping of pastors in the institutions. And if the institutions are changing their views on these, well, <laughs> there's not many people left then to have a different kind of voice. So the challenges that um, David Gushy points out in this piece um, are legitimate. There, There is this, this legitimate contest, maybe is the best way to describe it. And, um, and he really describes it, one, as the irresistible force, and that would be the cultural movement in the direction of LGBTQ, not only acceptance, but de-stigmati- de- mm-hmm. the destigmatizing know, right? <laughs> of all things LGBTQ um, and whatever other letters may be uh, attached to that as well. Um, he views that as the irresistible force. And then he describes as the immovable object what I would say is traditional Christian teaching. Right. And if the immovable object is then to be moved in order that it survive, it doesn't survive because it has moved. Like his argument is that the institutions must change in order for the institutions to continue to survive in a culture that's changing. But if those institutions, because they're Christian, authentically Christian, distinctively Christian, um, really, really Christian— um, if they change in these ways, they cease to be what they were, and they die anyway. I mean, they they may survive in form, but they totally fail in function. Yeah, that's exactly right, Carmen. When when a university or a traditional, historic, conservative, Christian, academic institution decides to shift and just goes along with the culture, there's no distinctive part anymore. There's no reason really to attend. But on the flip side of it, the other the, the pressure that an institution might face is that as young people increasingly are being sort of indoctrinated or taught a different understanding of historic sexuality, they may not want to go to an institution that is saying otherwise. And as we know, academic institutions are dependent upon tuition fee paying students typically, unless they have a very large donation base in in that. And so there's a lot of pressure in the face of dropping enrollment to wonder about historic positions with this. And there really doesn't seem to be a win for the institutions, the academic ones, if they just go along with it, as you referenced. And there may not be a win if they try to put their uh, stake in the ground on these issues as well, because a lot of young people will say, well, I don't want to necessarily go there. I do think, Carmen, there's a third way. And that third way is that to the institution that decides to maybe not just have a class on sexuality or uh, may not just approach it in chapel like once a year or something along those lines, but really wants to build out a robust infrastructure in terms of the response to all of this, I think there's going to be a lot of Christian families who would be very, very hungry and very interested in sending their children to an institution that really has a a much more sophisticated response to help equip our young people. And, And I say that just based on the microcosm of my sexuality class that I've taught these last probably 10 years or so. We are right in the middle, and in about an hour and a half, we'll dive into it again in my class on Wednesday morning. We're right in the middle of addressing the whole LGBTQ conversation. And Carmen, it takes me maybe 15 hours in class, and that is just a starting point to sort of go through the scriptural views, to go through some of the tradition and the history, to go through the biology and the sciences, world experience, all of that. And again, it's just a starting point. I would probably need somewhere between 40 and 60 hours to really 
do what's required to equip young people on these conversations. And that's based on it took me three years of my own research to try to get my head around what's going on. So there is a third way uh, besides just acquiescing or putting your flag on the ground. It really is a, a much more sophisticated response that's needed. Okay, when when we come back, um, I actually want to I want to kind of stick with this stubic stubic this subject, but also expand the conversation um, uh, because I do think there is this genuine question about how religion, specifically uh, traditional Christianity, um, confessional Christianity, is or is not attractive. Maybe is the is a word that we would use to the next generation, to young people, and so. Um, I want to continue this conversation, Peter, but I also want to sort of add the other portion of the conversation to it, which is this attempt um, to make Christianity attractive by making it less distinctively Christian. And so that conversation is the one that Peter Kapsner and I will continue to have when we come back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner. So, Peter, one of the things that um, I would say is maybe the bottom line uh, of this David Gushy piece posted at religionnews.com, Christian higher ed can't win the LGBTQ debate unless it transforms. The bottom line for me um, is this. Ultimately, and this is a quote from the piece, um, and, and when he says most here, he's talking about the LGBTQ students and their allies. Ultimately, most want Christian colleges and seminaries to abandon traditionalist Christian teaching that harms them deeply. So I want to talk about the harm language. I want to talk about the power of harm language. And then I want to talk about the reality that, you know, Christianity is not harmful. It's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. This is when something gets twisted in a right, you know, flying upside down, isn't it? And if we think of Satan as the father of all lies, as the biblical text refers to him to be, then we sort of have to be suspicious of anything that starts going mainstream and starts getting sort of a herd mentality around it, including this harm language where it's actually been flipped entirely upside down. And Carmen, I think, you know, Satan shows up in the text in a couple of ways. One is as a roaring lion, and I know what to do if I see a roaring lion, I run. But it's Satan as an angel of light that I think is the more troubling version of sort of the darkness that's around us, because an angel of light looks great and beckons you towards it, thinking that you're going to experience hope and healing and health and peace and all of that, when actually you are going to be experiencing destruction. And so... All of the invitations of our culture right now as the tsunami has swept over us is that if you can just find your identity, if you can just be free to pursue your attraction, if you can just all of these sorts of things, that that's where all of your help and healing is going to be. And by contrast, the beauty and wonder of what male and female relationships are supposed to be, according to historic church teaching, that's seen as harm. That's the exact opposite of what it is that it's meant to be. Um, And so I think there is some opportunity here, again, as I referenced, for churches and for institutions to sort of reestablish the idea of what is the beauty and the wonder and the help and the wholeness and healing that is our image-bearing reality as uh, young men and young women, as uh, in our marriages and our sexuality. What is that? Because in God's kingdom, 
there will be peace and there will be shalom and there will be help and healing. Uh, the harm actually comes by untethering from all of that and deciding to pursue your own sense of sexuality in a variety of ways. And the last piece that I can say about it is in chapel a couple of weeks ago here at Northwestern. And I know our young people pretty well here at Northwestern just based on the papers that they turn in and what they communicate to me in classes. And they are very confused and they're hurt and they've uh, often run through a lot of boundaries in their sexuality. And in God's kingdom, we judge things by the fruit, by what is born into the future. And so whatever it is we have been teaching and whatever it is they have been listening to in our education system is bearing the the fruit, as it were, of pain, confusion, turmoil, and harm actually. And so in the midst of that, the church has an opportunity and institutions have an opportunity to bring a, a message of health and, and healing and wholeness and all of that. We've got to turn this thing upside down one more time. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a note there. I'm actually typing that out. So pain, confusion, and turmoil are actually the fruit that are born out of the, the, the sexual confusion, the identity confusion, the yes. identity theft that has taken place um, in our culture. Um, and, and Christianity offers the, the actual, like, right, righteous, positive, joyful, liberating, um, healthy answer to all of that. And yet it is being characterized as precisely the opposite, as that which is harmful. I, I really don't think, Peter, there's a conversation that you and I could have that touches more deeply on what is happening in real people's lives right now. Yeah, agreed. It is this, you know, I don't know what your growing up was like, but for me, there was there was questions about identity and insecurity always happening, of course, throughout those adolescent years. Junior high is such a terrible, difficult time of life for many, as is high school. But the options in which you might decide to untether yourself from the church and from your family and from some of these beautiful traditions of our faith, the options were relatively limited. You could decide if you wanted to, to maybe become a party kind of person on a Friday and Saturday night and, and untether in some of those sorts of ways. But what we've seen now over these last 10 years is that there are so many, and I would say uh, more destructive ways to untether yourselves. And especially as some of the articles you and I were kicking around this week referenced, when you combine it with the breakdown of the family and the idea that the church is becoming less and less perceived to be relevant in young people's lives, that those two things, these historic institutions that held kids' identity and sense of self together no longer exist when you combine it with all of the sexual options on top of it. I think we just really don't quite understand how significant the turmoil is in our young people's lives. But this is then why we're seeing the rise of suicide rates, why we're seeing such extreme rises of anxiety and depression. Uh, kids are not being held together any longer by those traditional institutions. And uh, there, there's a I mean, I'm not an alarmist by any stretch, but if uh, somebody had an opportunity to read the papers that I get to read in my classes, semester in and semester out, I, I sometimes feel like I'm the pterodactyl in the coal mine, just sort of shouting out, there, there is a crisis here. Our young people are dying because of this. And, and it's going to take more than just like a, a February week in church to help sort things out for our kids or a book to read or something like that. There's been a systematic, uh, I would say, attack on institutions as well as what fills the gap is actually bringing harm versus any kind of health. Okay, I do want to touch on the numbers um, before we go. Uh, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal, I guess it's about 10 days ago now, an article entitled, Can Religion Still Speak to Younger Americans? Um, and the the American Family Survey um, data is what they were relying on there. And I just want people to know that when we talk about the rising influence of non-belief or non-affiliation in terms of the way young people identify 
when we're talking about um, younger people in the culture, 44% of, of, young, of young Americans age 18 to 29, 44% of them uh, have no faith, identify right. as having no faith. Um, that is a dramatic increase. I mean, the culture at large um, is is decreasing in terms of its uh, committed affiliation with Christian Christian institutions or the Christian faith, but it's it's rising the fastest among young people. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think we've spent a lot of time in our churches, at least what I see in seminaries and Christian ministry programs, identifying the word relevant with churches that are sort of attractive or make people feel comfortable as if Sunday morning is, it, it sort of looks like the rest of their life during the rest of the week. And uh, it's it usually is pretty seeker sensitive. And, and I understand the rationale for all of that, but I think relevance, Carmen, to me is always the beautiful kingdom of Jesus in which his teachings and the fact that his work on the cross and, and the empty tomb has set us free from the power of sin and death. And I would suggest to you that relevance is less about having, a, you know, this wonderful performance that streams through multiple campuses. And that, that can all be fine. I'm not saying uh, derogatory things about that. But rel- relevance really is about the truth of the kingdom setting us free from the power of sin and death to bring life and love and peace and hope that we begin to shine in the world around us and, and call people back in a reconciling way to God. And that's what our young people need is to be anchored in that kind of beautiful story uh, as opposed to going and just simply being entertained by a service. So I think that we'll uh, we'll walk off with these questions. Um, if we have young people who say that the most significant reasons that they um, are disaffiliating from the Christian faith and Christian institutions is, number one, they question a lot of things that are being taught there. And number two, they don't really like the positions that those churches or institutions are taking on politics or social issues. Maybe the questions we ought to be asking ourselves um, within Christian institutions and within our local church, are we actually offering answers? Are we preaching? Mm-hmm. Are we offering answers to questions they're not even asking? Right. And failing, failing to hear the questions they are asking and then seek to address those together. Um, so that's that's where I think we'll leave it. Peter, thank you so much as always for, for joining me. I feel like um, this is a conversation that we might uh, need to continue to till. I love it, Carmen. We'll talk to you next time. That's Peter Kapsner. Uh, And you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, we've got a whole nother hour together. We are looking forward to uh, talking with you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.